Hello everyone, I'm really excited to have my former co-worker Yanali Soriano here today to talk Hi. for an episode of The Lit Review to talk about the work of literary nonfiction called Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Yanali, do you want to quickly introduce yourself to the listeners and say what you think is most important for them to know in this conversation? about you. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, my name is Yanely Soriano. I grew up in Los Angeles and have lineage in Zapotec. Este, so I feel more comfortable saying I'm Angelina Zapotecs. Okay. Um, and yeah, I come from a lineage of Oaxaca. My family has also experienced eviction, so it was pretty awesome that you chose this piece mm -hmm. as I'm learning more and kind of diving deeper as to what my family has experienced so far. So definitely shout out. Hey. <laughs> um, but one of the most things to uh, learn about me, I think throughout this literature, I think, yeah, like the relationship with landlords, mm -hmm. how do, how do families i grew up as a translator for my family yeah <laughs> and that happened at an early age you know mm -hmm. and so and i saw that kind of expand into the relationships for landlords and i've been the contact person even still today mm -hmm. um so that's been really interesting to kind of go through this book and really think about the relationships that i'm having um, with different landlords and from here moving on out how to kind of switch that up to mm -hmm. not be as toxic or to not always feel on the defense and stressed about it yes yeah. it's a learning one I think it's a pretty common experience of immigrant kids needing to translate in inappropriate circumstances. Like, <coughs> you translating in eviction court is something that you should not have been expected to do as a 13-year-old. Yeah. WTF. Like, <laughs> I want to learn if I can sue. Right. <laughs> When's the statutory limitation on that? <laughs> uh, and we saw that in the book Evicted, too. Um, I was always so sad reading about Arlene, Jafaris, and Jory, and yeah. how Jory, I think, was like four years old, and um, Matthew Desmond picked up that he had learned how to have a stone face, hmm. so that his mom wouldn't need to work, whenever something bad is happening, like an eviction, he wouldn't need to, he wouldn't provide an extra burden in having to comfort him, which is so sad, he was four years old and he had already learned that survival technique. It's really infuriating how our young ones are pushed and forced to do this, right? And I think that we also go in, I, I, I during that court interpretation was like, oh my gosh, this is my job. Like, this right. is my sole responsibility, like da-da-da-da. So yeah, definitely like all the pressure and um, definitely need to talk these, uh, things out and reflect on things, especially mm -hmm. later on in life. Because um, I hadn't realized that I had blocked most of that out. Right. And as a survival mechanism exactly and then yeah. when it came back i started crying and then i was over it but <laughs> or you know over the crying part yeah and more into the infuriating part and yeah it's just how psychological warfare is going on for our generations of being displaced of all this trauma that we're either you know they're youth witnessing and experiencing right now at the fucking border and fucking concentration camps yeah um to right. people being stuck within urban spaces you know and and going through poverty and eviction yeah so and those and those things are connected in the epilogue he talked about how the stress of being evicted can lead to depression mm. and he there were studies that he cited where similarly situated women um he like it was a study of t similarly situated women and the women who had been evicted 
had more symptoms of depression, mm-hmm. even like three years out after the eviction. Um, and then there's there could be multiple evictions, no? So right. Oh yeah, like, like the, that. Yeah. It's just like which we also encounter. Yeah, yeah. The Arlene went through so many evictions, so many and different. and I was also struck by the relationships that were formed in order to survive so many evictions. Like Lenny always touches my heart. I think that just being in that position and you know talking to different youth, I think there could be problematic things with Lenny. Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> um, but I. And, and I won't dismiss, though, the fact that he actually tried to build relationships with youth, too. Um, actually, I'm forgetting if Lenny... What happened to Lenny right now? No, yeah, he was evicted, no? I'm not sure. Why am I blanking on this? <laughs> it was because it makes you feel like you're not worthy of one of the most minimum basic necessities of life. Like, shelter is something that every human being deserves. Mm-hmm and to feel to be in these positions where you're basically being told like you don't even deserve to live in this apartment with broken windows and a toilet that doesn't work and a sink that doesn't work is really damaging to a person's psyche well so matthew desmond had shared that he himself experienced losing his childhood home which i appreciated because I'm, I'm assuming that part of the reason why he was able to paint such a rich picture is because that one that wasn't objectifying of the people he was writing about mm-hmm. is because he himself experienced at least a similar type of situation and so could ap- approach the story from a more human perspective. And I also appreciated it because my family also experienced losing our childhood home when I was a senior in high school. And it was super, it was a super painful experience because I had seen how many years, my how much work and how many years my mom had put in to build, eventually owning this home. And it was in 2010 during the mortgage crisis. She refinanced and then with the new deal, she was paying more than what the house was actually worth on the market. And uh, so we, we were evicted from there. And I've also noticed that since then, my mom has been pushed out of a lot of places, even if she's not been formally evicted. Mm. Like, for the first place that we moved into, we found out that the landlord had installed a camera in the living room. Are I you know, fucking serious? So illegal. Like, I hadn't gone to law school yet, so I, I just really had no idea how to approach that. Right. But I just knew it was illegal. Because <laughs> she had all these rules about, like, don't do drugs in the house and... We were only supposed to have one dog, and so, I don't know, she, I guess, thought it was, I don't even know. We found, we, like, saw that and got super freaked out, and... Tied it? Okay. My older brother found it. It was, like, in the corner, and, I don't know, it was, like, a, a black bulb in the corner, and none of us ever looked at it, because we just never suspected that it, there could be in a your camera home? there. Yeah. yeah. And my older brother, eventually, I think he, like, took the bulb, took the bulb out, and then was like, whoa, this is a camera yeah oh shit yeah like wide-eyed like what the fuck mode yeah that's (laughs) infuriating i know and then the second time my little brother threw two very loud unsupervised parties (laughs) this story is like like in red it was like very troubling at the time but in retrospect it's kind of funny because what happened (laughs) is like my family went on a trip to lake tahoe and then my little brother stayed behind because he wanted to throw this party he was like in high school okay (laughs) Like, what else, you know? Yeah, it's like, okay, what else? Yeah, what else is new? <laughs> and it was super loud, and the neighbors called the police. 
Which is another, yeah, which I think is another thing to talk about too, right? Like how neighbors calling the police can lead to evictions that were not predictable. But so then the police was called and then uh, we were living in like, I don't they were, I guess it was a, it was a homeowners association. Do you know what those are? It's like when... Is it like for first homeowners no, particularly or no? Okay. It's like it can be a series of condos and uh, even though, so like you rent the unit, but then even if you own the unit, there's like this governing board that has all these rules you need to follow about what you're allowed to put in your front yard because they want an aesthetic. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this isn't like community housing situation. No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's just kind of a weird private market just, thing. Okay. And so that's where we were. And so then the homeowner association people called my mom and they were like, if an incident like this happens again, then we will evict you. And then my mom, (laughs) my mom being my mom and kind of like having a hot head called my brother and she was like, you just got us evicted for your, for your party. Like, how could you do that? Blah, blah, blah. Like trying to scare him into not doing that again and so then Gerardo having 17 year old logic was like well if we're already evicted then I should throw another party (laughs) no I know and so then the next day he threw another party and then that was when they were like okay you need to leave (laughs) and then the last thing that happened is that neighbors had issues with our husky he's like this really big fluffy dog and he has like a sore on his nose Mm -hmm. and so I think like he might look scary to people but he's the friendliest dog and he has arthritis so he really just keeps to himself it's actually hard for him to walk mm. it was really absurd that that was the reason why people were upset and wanted my mom to leave but desmond said that eviction is a woman of color issue and particularly single moms and i felt that that's been very true in my own experience mm. has your family experienced displacement you know we have yes um i just as i disclosed earlier we went through my family went through eviction mm-hmm. also around the time of the crisis right it's kind of wild how these statistics are true and mm-hmm. that's what the book does is it draws out these narratives definitely at the beginning i definitely had to like take a pause and then just put it down for like two seconds and then come back because it's that stress that we actually that we were talking about earlier the you know just like the weariness of coming home and just seeing that fucking lock on your door mm-hmm. it's like, fuck mm-hmm. well uh, my family went to court for eviction and at that time i was around 13 years old and the court decided that it was okay for a 13 year old to interpret for the fucking court for eviction and is um, that because the they didn't have an official court interpreter they didn't have an official court interpreter and this was my main concern i remember going to the free legal clinic mm-hmm. you know a week two weeks prior mm-hmm. to do our our quote-unquote prep time which is just like okay these are the documents that you need to sign maybe you can use these pictures and good luck <laughs> and so then I, and then i feel like i've definitely been that person <laughs> sometimes it happens yeah. you know and it was just like okay and i remember asking like will there be an interpreter? Because that was my main concern. Right. And then they were like, oh yeah, definitely. There's definitely going to be an interpreter. Day of, of course, there's no interpreter. And I thought, okay, So is this because your family speaks Zapotec and they didn't have a Zapotec interpreter or really there was just no interpreter? There really just wasn't an interpreter. My family doesn't speak fluent Zapotec. Okay. Talk about displacement. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh. We're going to talk about colonialism. Here we go. Here we go. Pero, yeah, so there was no Spanish interpreter in the courtroom that day at all. And I forgot how it That's was like, brought up. That your hearing should have been rescheduled. That's a due process violation. Yeah. 
how, how can that's you, what I expected. Yeah, like, every schedule. You, how can you evict somebody without them fully understanding what they're saying? You're relying on a 13 year old who has never been trained to interpret. This is the fucked up part. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like they, I was interpreting and I was trying to interpret word by word, and there was a moment where I was like, oh. Let me just throw in this little phrase at the end, mm-hmm. and we'll be good, you know? And I remember it was one of the, like, defense times. Like, were you adding things that you thought would help your parents? Yes. Of course, your... Of course! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And so I was trying to add that little, little phrase at the end, and I remember the judge just immediately stopped, looked up, and was like... You cannot say anything additionally to what the defendant hasn't said already. It has to be word by word or else it's not official court interpretation. Right. That is the standard for official court interpretation, which is why there's trainings to be a court interpreter. It's an official job. Yes. I'm just, and growing up, I'm just like being unofficial interpreter and it's just like, fuck you. (laughs) Sorry. Right. I'm just really, yeah. And I hadn't realized that I had blocked this out until uh, recently in my job. I had to think more about interpretation and think about like the different things that I can share with them, with folks. Mm-hmm. And and then this came up and I was like, oh shit, I for- totally forgot this shit went down. Mm-hmm. And I remember standing That's there- That's a survival mechanism. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Just numbing, mm-hmm. just numbing and mm-hmm. it hurts. Mm-hmm. And then you realize and then it hurts more. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So mental health flag there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so in that moment, I remember being with my mom. She was on my right side. Uh, excuse me, on my left side. And I remember looking over to my right, and it was just two suits, just like really well polished and shit, you know. And I'm over here being screamed at, and I'm like, thirteen-year-old me is like, okay, right. professionalism now. Right. And the landlord had to lawyer. It was infuriating. Mm-hmm. It should have been rescheduled, and it wasn't. And I should really look into it. <laughs> Again, what is the statute of limitations on that? <laughs> on a civil eviction claim. Yes! <laughs> that's, that's I'm so happy I'm here. <laughs> but yeah, and, and we eventually got help from our community to find another place, a place that wouldn't check for credit. So talk about mm-hmm. undocumented mm-hmm. Uh, folks or mm-hmm. people, you know, the black community for many years went without credit or being able to right. have land use or mm-hmm. any ownership at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also something else to talk about for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were, you know, luckily we were able to find a place, but at that time it was one of the most challenging times for our family. So it was nine of us in a one bedroom apartment on the third floor mm-hmm. with two newborns. Oh um, my God. And my parents Nobody had just gotten. And my right? <laughs> there's like this little pasillo to go through because there was just two beds in the living room, and then we just go back. Yeah. You know. Anyway, but yeah, it was it was a challenging time, and it just really shows how this poverty is just a war on poverty, and it just keeps that cycle mm-hmm. going and keeps it going. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're also living within capitalism, so we ourselves yes. also keep it perpetrated, right? Yes. So that was interesting to take a look at, but. It, Definitely challenging. Didn't realize I blocked it off. So traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or at least I can share from my behalf. I'm sure many other people that I experienced that have also felt that or more. You know, yeah, like, you know, documented in the book. You know, exactly. It's not yeah. normal for a four-year-old to not express emotions. <laughs> it's fucking not. Yeah, that's the numbing you're talking about right there. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing up capitalism in the book because 
he did a really good job, the author did a really good job of showing the perverse incentives that landlords have in order to make money. Yes. And also he, he noted that like these are a specific type of landlord. I mean, I'm just going to call them slumlords because they're people who... I like that word. <laughs> yeah. I think he used it. That's not me. <laughs> <laughs> because they, I guess, mo- a lot of landlords don't want to own property in, quote-unquote, the inner city. They don't want to own trailer parks because they don't see it as a reliable source of income because folks can't always pay Mm -hmm. but there's a subset of landlords that have kind of made this their niche and sharina is one sharina and quentin are one are a couple (laughs) are another example of that and then tobin who owns the trailer park is another example of that Mm -hmm. and him talking coming up to children and demanding rent god what the fuck, dude? Right. Don't. Sorry. Yeah, that was okay. Tobin and Landlord in the trailer park. Where So th- the reason why it's their, these people's niche is because they kind of are shameless in the things that they'll do to get money from the tenants. Like one of the things that Tobin would do is go up to kids, the kids of the tenants who hadn't paid, and be like, your, your parents owe me rent. Yeah. Which is super terrifying. A kid doesn't understand why, who is this person? Am I in trouble? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Am I unsafe? Am I going to get my parents in trouble if I say something wrong? Yeah. 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 Goes yeah. on. Yeah. And so also another thing that the landlords do in order to get rent from people is like they won't repair things in the apartment if rent has gone unpaid. So it's like, you know, but it's just, it's like, it's cruel because people, it's not like people aren't paying you because they don't have the money mm-hmm. or sorry, because they they don't want to but they have the money they're not paying you because they just straight up don't have money and so you by you not repairing things which is a landlord obligation then you're making their day-to-day lives really terrible mm-hmm. i really appreciated the the scenes of arlene I, th- I think it was arlene or maybe it was somebody else but they talked about a family who's whose sink was overflowing and it would like go onto the floor and a toilet that didn't work that had gone that way for months okay and another one where their tub was propped up with like the car one that one's the one that frightened me i was like you're gonna fall oh yeah i think that was that in the trailer park in the trailer park yeah and how it got the family in a funk because they're like what's the point of cleaning like the sink doesn't work the the toilet smells like shit like why am i gonna clean Mm -hmm. and like when you're in an environment like that, it, it leads to depression. Cuidado del alrededor. It's it, it's like annoying when the voice of my mom comes in my head to like, levántate y limpia, you know. But it's just like, yeah, and the fact that they're not even inspecting for mold, or I think the agency or doesn't obligate landlords to report or something like that about the mold in the air that's airborne. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that. That's I, I think really it was bad. towards the beginning. Yeah, pero. Yeah, they weren't obligated to report that. And so we're also talking about, as you're saying, environmental racism. Yeah. And just like water, you know. (laughs) Hello. Things like that. Um, But yeah, yeah, there was a section where they talked about like different things that they don't do, including the reports, including the mold and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I guess there were city inspectors that tenants could call if things weren't being repaired. But that wasn't really a viable avenue for tenants because what would happen is landlord would just evict them. 
So they had, they were really forced to live in those conditions. And in the trailer park, the whole park was gonna shut down. Right? Yeah, that was they were, they were worried about that. Doing their limits. Yeah, it goes back to what you mentioned before about relationships, no? And yeah, I was gonna re I was gonna read that quote. He wrote, "I wanted to write a book about poverty that didn't focus exclusively on poor people and poor places. Poverty was a relationship, I thought, involving poor and rich people alike." To understand poverty, I needed to understand that relationship. And that's, it's totally accurate because this book wouldn't have been what it was if he hadn't pictured the landlords. Like I said before, I was kind of creeped out that he, I was like, why is he humanizing the landlords? Right. <laughs> we don't need that. Mm -hmm. But, but like actually what he, I mean, I think I appreciated it because he humanized them, but then he also showed their greed and the, you know, messed up things. Show their truth. Yeah. yeah. He showed, and it's funny because he says that. He told Sharina that uh, he's writing a book about landlords and tenants, and, and so he was like, can I shadow you? And the and Sharina was so excited, like, yes, of course, because <laughs> she was so proud of everything that she did. Mm. Yeah, and, and she didn't hold back, obviously, and so you're able to see how people are profiting off of these folks' poverty. Because, mm. like, Tobin, I think, I think off the trailer park, he was making, like, probably 440000 a year. Mm. And I don't know how much Shreen and Quentin were making, but they were at least, at the very least, in the middle class. You know? If, if, it, if mm -hmm. at all, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, the relationship part was really interesting. Because it is. I think it definitely keeps that cycle in motion. Because I thought so many... There are, I cannot count how many times I thought about this, especially after going to college or being exposed to different people from different classes. And you know, meeting people that have parents that are CEOs or, you know, whatever. And it's just like, you just heard my story. Like, you know what conditions we are. You know, redistribute some of those funds this way, you know? And it's just like, Ugh. I, it's, it's such a revolutionary like, thought. Yeah, that you is know, a very revolutionary thought. That is just like, oh, okay. But the way that I first like thought about that was because I had a relationship mm -hmm. or at least I think I do that's also, yeah, also another part yeah. ha, ha, ha. so I don't know but I've, I've thought about that before and it's just huh so I was really appreciative when it was mentioned or when Desmond says that it's more of a relationship and well you actually experienced you actually expected your college roommates to redistribute their wealth no oh, I oh. never actually like asked oh, it oh. was a thought and okay. then I was like oh that's that's too out there yeah don't ever say that <laughs> <laughs> the rich people that I met at Yale are some of the cheapest people I've ever encountered. Oh. And, like, that's actually a whole thing. Like, like I, f I think one of them said something like, well, yeah, that's how you stay rich is by taking care of your money. <laughs> you know, like, going out to dinner and, like, counting the pennies as we divide it up by everybody. Oh, gosh. And, like, I remember once I went out to dinner with my suite and I invited a friend of who was closest to me but who really was friends with everybody in the group and he left early and like paid like dropped some cash on the table but it wasn't enough to cover his meal and uh -huh. so they were like Yvette you need to pay for Joe's for the rest of Joe's meal because you invited him and I'm like damn dude like you know my financial background you've invited me to your fancy vacations and I told you no I can't because mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of money and I, I'm just zero consideration for what my situation was that she just wanted her ten dollars <laughs> that's my like, other this shit. like millionaire woman wanted my ten dollars gosh yeah yeah and I think I mean little microaggressions from well-intended people I don't think that they meant harm but even just like 
the comment of like, oh, you shower with, I don't know why I'm, I guess this is just brought to my mind. This probably doesn't connect. But it's like I was sharing in one, the first home I ever lived out, out of campus. Mm-hmm. And it was the first house I had ever lived in. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have cold water. It was always hot. Mm-hmm. And so then I was like, how, how do you turn on the cold water? You know, and they're like, oh, it's only hot. You shower with cold water? And I was, I was like, yeah, the warmest setting is too hot for me. <laughs> like, I can't, like, which I did. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. But it was just like, even that little shit, like, just, and this person knows a lot about social conditions and, and different things. But it was just like, oh, okay, even with someone else who might think is more aware, we still got to work through this, you know? And it's still that, like, little things that come up. And it's just that definitely to add to the con to the topic of trauma to leading to depression Mm -hmm. because then i thought oh there must be something wrong with me you know and so then we go then i went into that route Mm -hmm. bring shame sure yeah exactly um and so it's just kind of like re reflecting resetting and just kind of keep moving of course but it'll just those little things kind of keep you kind of make you think a little bit more and it's like oh okay if we're really good at reflecting we could get better at it <laughs> yeah, but we're working yeah, on especially it, for the woke crowd right it's like, yeah you know because there's a lot of middle class upper and i'm sure i've been toxic people. too you know there's we all have we all have yeah 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 so one of the things that i appreciate learning about this book is how widespread the phenomenon is of people spending like over half of their income on rent. This is something that I saw in the Bay, in the Bay Area, specifically in San Francisco and Oakland, and that was actually a huge reason why I decided to move to Tucson because even as a public interest lawyer, I would have been struggling. <laughs> not not yeah. struggling to the degree that we saw in this book, but like I just wouldn't have led the lifestyle that I wanted to lead when I went to law school. Just. I'm very candid about the fact that for me going to law school was also a way of making myself middle class and not having to go through the things I went through when I was a child. And your and the future generations to come, if yeah. that's a conversation. If yeah. <laughs> Mocha, Mocha lives well. I'm a little baby. Baby. <laughs> yeah, so this book was set in Milwaukee mm-hmm. and the most so most it was you saw how poverty is cyclical because these folks were living on SSI or most of them, SSI or disability, and they would get like six hundred twenty-five a month for rent, and then the for like their month, and then the rent was like five hundred twenty-five, <laughs> and so obviously you're gonna get behind on your other bills, on your electricity, your water, your mm-hmm. gas, mm-hmm. because and when because you don't even have enough money for leftover for food, you know. And so it says, today the majority of poor renting families in America spend over half of their income on housing. I didn't know that. I didn't know it was the majority of poor renting families in America. And at least one in four dedicates over 70% to paying the rent and keeping the lights on. Yeah. I think, let's talk about rent control. There's no rent control in Pasadena, Mm. even still till today. And that's where my family was evicted somewhat years ago. Even in LA, like there's so many people being displaced Boyle Heights going through gentrification. Shout out to defend Boyle, Ho- Boyle Heights. Yeah. And getting down. Este. But yeah, it's ridiculous how even today, just the policies. I mean, always, no? We're living in it. Yeah. But there's still so much fight that could be done, you know? And I, and I see people taking initiative in Pasadena. I need to get more acquainted with what's going on in Tucson in terms of housing because I also moved from LA. 
well, I went, I went from Michigan to LA to, well, Mi- Michigan to Tucson, sorry. But def- that definitely was a conversation that I had with myself of like, if I go to LA, there's literally no privacy mm-hmm. because I'm gonna living, I'm gonna be living with this other amount of people. Yeah. And I didn't want a roommate. The whole that wasn't my partner, Joseph. Mm-hmm. I, I decided that for myself. It's like, I don't want to do that. Because the, fi- the whole finding roommates thing in San Francisco was such a pain because of how competitive the market was. Literally, it was like it was like a job interview. Oh, shit. Yeah. Like, oh, God. Yeah, I knew it was like, you know, you had to make sure that you meshed with the roommates. So, like, what's your favorite board game? And, like, oh my God. what do you do in your free time? And, like, what wine do you like? And it's just all, it's like, wow, this is for real finding job interview. <laughs> yeah. Like, Joseph went through, like, three rounds. Uh, well, talking about rent control, actually, because, like, if it's a competitive market, it's still, it's going to be tough to get a place. So, mm-hmm. Joseph was in a rent control department in Oakland, and they had... They went through, or he he had to go through like a series of interviews before they were like, okay, yeah, you can you can live here. Oh my gosh, yeah. Whoa, didn't realize that was a situation in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But I appreciated learning how. Oh wait, this is also happening in Milwaukee. Like this is mm-hmm. actually something that's characteristic of poor people living in the city. I, I appreciated. And that there's pockets everywhere. I think one of the things that I really appreciated when talking to people from Tucson is they one of the people that talk to me more about Tucson who I learned whom I learned more about Tucson oh gosh so repetitive <laughs> um was Alicia Vasquez este she was at that time part of the border studies program but she also talked about how there's pockets everywhere you know and Tucson is so mm-hmm. spread out mm-hmm. and we like to think of it only concentrated in the south side but if we if if we drive around there's there's different communities happening even it's mid-central central town and even east and mm-hmm. it was interesting as I was driving up actually I was like rich people need school buses what like don't you drive your people to school <laughs> but anyway that was such a random comment that for me when when I saw that there that also communicated maybe to me, maybe I'm just being, I'm assuming that because there's a school bus and public um, transportation that there's pockets of low-income communities within that um, community as well. Right. Well, I think that's also the goal of Section 8 housing is Mm -hmm. to integrate poor folks into more middle-class neighborhoods. But I just think it gets complicated because you don't just need a voucher for, if you are gonna live in like a middle-class or upper class neighborhood mm-hmm. you're gonna need more that you're gonna need a subsidy not just for your rent but also for like the groceries that you're gonna buy yep. and like what bills are you gonna have yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we were talking earlier about relationships and i thought <laughs> I thought how Sharina interacted with her tenants was really interesting because she like would cut them slack at times, but then eventually would need to put up a wall and just say, this is a business transaction and you need to be evicted. Like she, she said, I feel bad for the kids. Lamar's got them little boys in there and I love Lamar, but love don't pay the bills. Love don't pay the bills. <laughs> And she said, I guess I got to stop feeling sorry for these people because nobody's feeling sorry for me. Last time I checked, the mortgage company still wanted their money. And I, I think that's like Sharina fundamentally misunderstanding her tenant's motives because like I said, it's like, like Desmond does the math for you. He's like, okay, they would get this much in SSI. 
this is how much their rent was. Electricity is this. Food is this. Mm-hmm. Like people, it's like, Shrina, these people are not eating so they can so that they can pay their rent to you. And I know that you exactly. have your own mortgage, but they don't have any mortgage because they they don't have access to home ownership at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it goes to that can't control or judge how people in low income are managing their money. Like they yes. they know what's going on. Yeah. you know, and and. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, I've also caught myself, like, thinking about that. I'm like, no, you can't. You can't fucking do that. Like, that's not fair. People deserve happiness. People deserve going out to eat. Like, you you can't, you can't control shit. You can't judge. So that definitely... He like, talked about food. that in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I really... Like, yeah, <laughs> all over it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I appreciated that portrayal because I think this is a huge issue of, like middle class, upper middle class, rich people judging poor folks for the decisions that they make. And he pointed, he, he put it really well, really beautifully. He said something along the lines of like, these folks know they're never getting out of poverty. And so they choose to live their life with color every once in a while. And, he, and so he explained how there was one woman who would get her food stamp check at the beginning of the month and then she would buy she would buy her she would she would ball out for that <laughs> for that first meal she she got like king leg crab uh-huh That's i forgot right. what yeah. other i it forgot was... what other type of seafood but it was like a seafood spread <laughs> and then she got herself a bottle of pepsi and then <laughs> ate like all it was okay, like, yeah, yeah it was a ton of seafood and she ate it all in one sitting. And then she, she talked about how, like, for the rest of the month, she had to go to the food pantry and or just, like, not eat. And she was like, I don't regret anything because I have the memory of that meal. Mm-hmm. And, it like, when he points out that these folks are not getting out of poverty, like, the type of poverty that they live in is such that, that you can't escape it without some kind of outside help because it's structural. And so, you know, he just points out so what does that mean am i never gonna have anything nice and why don't i deserve anything nice mm. okay we've been talking for like 50 minutes oh is there anything else that you wanted to share you want to critique the sociology department yes <laughs> i think what are one of the things that i really appreciated about desmond was also how desmond challenges for like sociology to expand is the he says we need a robust sociology of housing that reaches beyond a narrow focus of policy on policy and public housing. We need a new sociology of displacement mm-hmm. that documents the prevalence, causes, and consequences of eviction. And perhaps more important, we need a committed sociology of inequality that includes a serious study of exploitation and extracted markets. This is the shit. Like. <sighs> This was yeah. my whole point of sitting in sociology classes was like, how the fuck are we gonna use this for the world? Right. And he does a beautiful job of not only what are the causes to it, but also what I appreciate or what are the effects as one of the major topics of our conversation today. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think that there could be so much more expansion, so much growth, and so much focus. And so many people are doing that now. You know, hello, we're reading the book now. Is the and so. I just think that there just needs to be more of a push for that because not many people are having the conversations that Desmond's is having. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that this is one step going forward, but Mm -hmm. we need to capture different types of poverty, 
need to capture you know what it's like to be evicted when you don't speak english we have to cover what it's like to be living in rural poverty like there, i think there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about yeah what are what are indigenous about. folks going through you know right. like right the people most vulnerable to exploitation and i appreciated that he wants a sociology of extraction and exploitation because low-key that's kind of the landlord-tenant relationship like <laughs> you have bought this piece of property and have decided to charge me money for it because yeah. <laughs> i can't afford a home to live like i can't afford to buy my own home mm-hmm. at this moment and talk about also like i think the stability of a home is so important as you mentioned before mm-hmm. and and as people are also coming into this region of the land or being displaced from this region of the land i think it's uh, it's really infuriating just knowing that this just continues on. We're not only learn, like learning it in, in throughout our history, but it's happening now, and we need to call it what it is. It's displacement. It's not just gentrification. It's an attack on our communities. And I think that we need to come up with like better words of using when it comes to this um, as we are recovering different languages and different terms that we can use to actually describe what's going on. And not just use um, words that maybe favor a more institutional way of how are we talking about this? You know, Ooh. I think that the word eviction or evicted, like how how, how do you say evicted in Spanish? I don't know. If yeah. I'm sure there's an actual. You know, there's actual word, but it's just like how do we how do we have these conversations where different people are having these conversations? Can we bring people that are actually going through this into the conversation? Maybe not. Maybe they're going through a lot, but we can work on resources to offer um, and things of that sort. We're looking into different ways of helping different families out, whether it's through the food pantry or you know other resources that we can look into. But it's super hard, and there aren't many policies that are protecting families at all. Yeah, I mean, I think stuff like the food pantry and like volunteer kindness is just a there's so much more that needs to be done yeah you know because so because he points out that the reason for increased urban poverty is the loss of jobs loss of manufacturing Mm -hmm. jobs specifically in milwaukee between 1979 and 1983 milwaukee's manufacturing sector lost more jobs than during the great depression about 56,000 of them the city where virtually everyone had a job in the post-war years saw its unemployment rate climb into the double digits and these are issues so the reason it continues on is because that root issue is still at play today i think probably even more so with more and more companies going overseas for cheap labor where labor isn't regulated the way mm-hmm. that it is in the u.s and Definitely. or or with people exploiting undocumented people within the u.s as well <laughs> ding 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 that's the big one yeah yeah i mean they're all big yeah yeah mm-hmm. and then also what i appreciated is him like I think he shared the story of Crystal, who had been abused, sexually abused as a child, and then had been through a ton of foster homes, and then now was like 18 and trying to be on her own, and she had been diagnosed with a ton of stuff, like mm-hmm. what was it? PTSD, depression, anxiety, but like also specific stuff like she has she has trouble relating to others she has trouble with intimacy because she is she like automatically thinks that she's going to be abandoned and she's prone to violence for that reason Mm. and 
and I think and I think her she also had a learning disability and really just she's not a very employable person and we have to ask ourselves what do we do with those people in our society are we okay with people living on the street because they don't have the abilities required to work under capitalism i think that that's a really important thing that we need to ask ourselves because some so like okay the court a huge part of this is job loss that's true but there are also people who who can never work yes yeah Yeah. and then what do we do with those people Mm -hmm. and i think and i really appreciate i think that's why this work is so important because it humanizes those folks right like living under capitalism you're taught to judge people who aren't employable and you're taught to think that it's their fault and you're taught to think that they're weak and that they deserve whatever they have coming to them and even if you know you're dike woke now it these things are internalized and i think reading a text like this helps you realize oh that's a person that could be me like if those are my life experiences that's what i would be going through as well and then just thinking well how would i want to be treated i would want to be able to have shelter regardless of whether or not i could have a steady job this all day <laughs> yeah especially with how comprehensive he, he made it oh yeah so this is what we we're talking about before when city or state officials pressured landlords by ordering them to hire an outside security firm or by having a building inspector scrutinize their property mm-hmm. landlords often pass the pressure onto their tenants once so we were saying earlier before about how like okay your landlord refuses to, to fix your sink what do you do you call the city inspector well that's not going to do anything for you because your landlord's just going to evict you right and that, that leads to the sense of helplessness that folks have and that, that's where the, i think the psychological impact comes from because it's like i have no avenues and why is that and why do i deserve to live this way i think that for the young ones if they see this it can also lead to like not knowing how to ask for help because there's this idea that we're all in it for ourselves and mm-hmm. survival and mm-hmm. we are disposable. That's mm-hmm. the message that we're getting yeah. or that people are getting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we need to get closer to the, to the statement of we're, no one is disposable. Yes. Um, and I'm really glad that you bring up disability. I'm also thinking, I mean, there's different communities that mm-hmm. are also to be addressed, to yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and unable to work. Um, and yeah, that's, that's really concerning especially i mean also for a parent you know thinking of their young ones and how they're gonna be as they grow up or you know be taken care of or taking care of themselves if mm-hmm. possible and that's another stress added on to another person that's going through all of this only the reverse of kids need to take care of their parents in old age like i'm going to have to do También. you know like yeah yeah it's and uh, he he's actually he he did point out that there is more there's more availability for quote unquote elder housing than there is for low income housing because the elderly are a more sympathetic group. Just two eye rolls. Yeah. Right. The most sympathetic group. I don't know what note to end on. Maybe we should just end there. <laughs> <laughs> just add no one is disposable. And we need to no one is disposable. This. Perfect. Yeah. We'll end on that note. Bye y'all. So, you know, I wanted to make a correction because she mentioned Lenny was the mentor to youth who she really loved in the book. And I miss, I fucked up, y'all. I'm so sorry. His name is Lamar, actually. Yes. <laughs> I don't know where the fuck I got Lenny. Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Lamar's story is 
really intense and really touching. Who also is disabled, actually. He is. Yes. He, is. he lost both of his legs. Mm-hmm. And um, I think also a huge part of the book is drug usage and drug addiction. Pregnant mama. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, so, yeah. but for Lamar, he, the reason he lost his legs, do you remember this? Is that he went on a bender. I forget which drug specifically, but he ended up in this abandoned home and his legs froze. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And he was stuck there, like, for eight days. No food, just, like, paralyzed. And then eventually was able to save himself by jumping out of a second-story window, I think. And that was how he lost his legs. Lamar went through some, some yes, stuff. Yes, some tough serious stuff. shit. Yeah. But he, despite all that trauma, like, he, his home was always a center for youth to come around. Mm-hmm. Desmond described how neighborhood kids like not his own children would come around and it was just a safe place to be not on the street playing cards yeah. and chilling out and it was a really nice yeah it, there were some points where he was a little problematic with like drug use in the home with with kids or also i think also maybe offering oh when he was smoking the blunt yeah he was smoking which is like <laughs> I, I i'm just like at, at a pause but i'm like these are also developing brains well, I don't know. See, now I feel like I'm being paternalistic. See, yeah, that's yeah. where I'm. That's where I'm like at a gray area. I'm just like, uh, but yeah. it's their developing brain. But it, but it, but, but yeah. Cause, <laughs> well, and because the thing is like, well, because what I was gonna say is like, oh well, it might be especially dangerous for these kids who have a lot of trauma in their lives. Like the trauma has already impacted their brain chemistry. To then also add drug usage, I think that's a bad combination. But. Again, I don't, that's not my decision to make, and I smoked weed at 17, so I'm not going to tell somebody else to yeah. not do that. <laughs> yeah, I smoked weed when I was 15. And also, let's talk about the context of the environment. Like, he yeah. was not offering a destructive, right, <laughs> he was actually having a conversation with them while passing this use of, yeah. of, of cannabis. But yeah, I think that that's really important to add, um, and definitely really important to consider um, he was... His intention was not to just offer drugs to people as they came in through the door. Mm-hmm. It was having sit down, talk what's going on, how was your day, and this happened to happen, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm personally a believer that weed is a medicine and that, like, it can be, it can help anxiety and it can help, like, intergenerational anxiety, like, anxiety that comes from intergenerational trauma. So I mean, there's a lot of weed usage in the book. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. And I understand it as a coping mechanism. And I think Definitely. compared to the harder stuff, it's I think it's not that bad. <laughs> here and, I am raising my hand right here. <laughs> and prohibition. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah. But, okay, okay. So now that we clarified who Lamar is and his story. Thank you. We are out. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>